A number of years ago, and I think I've shared this before, I was working as a grader at a local seminary. In fact, I was working for one of your former pastors here when I was presented with a paper that proved particularly challenging to review. The professor had asked me to be generous with the grades, but this one challenged even that wide margin of latitude. And it wasn't the content of the paper so much as how that paper ended. On the final page, the writing ended. Now, you would expect as much on a paper, but there were no additional pages citing sources, and strangely enough, no period at the end of that final line. In fact, that last line didn't even form a complete sentence. I was expecting to pick up the rest of the writer's arguments in subsequent pages, but as I've already said, no additional pages. This was back in the day when you'd hand in a paper. Remember those days? We used to have a Xerox box we'd take to the class and everybody would throw their papers in it and then they'd carry the box out and then I would take it home uh, with me. So this is back in those days. So the pages must have gotten lost in the shuffle. They must have been stuck with some other uh, papers and got lost along the way. So for my part, I dug through the stack of class submissions to see if they had gotten shuffled, like I said, in the rest of the pile. No such luck. I reached out to the professor to see if he might have them. Nothing. And so I reached out to the student to see if they could provide me with the remaining pages so the review could be completed. There was one problem. There were no remaining pages. <laughs> the half sentence wasn't due to lost work, wasn't due to missing pages, but because the student had decided they were done writing. <laughs> and so they just stopped. They handed their paper in and hoped for it to receive a grade. Half papers don't communicate the whole story. It's hard to read a full argument when you only have half the work in front of you. Catchy phrases do the same thing. They don't present the full story for us. As we learn in our text this morning, and despite the factions and dysfunction that existed within that ancient Corinthian church, some in that church presumed they were operating consistent to the freedom they now enjoyed in Jesus Christ. But there's a problem. There's a problem with what they were doing. What they are leaning on for support for their position only told half the story. They had an incomplete view of Christian freedom. And so the ancient writer here, the Apostle Paul, when he's writing to this Corinthian church, and we're going to hear more uh, from his letters in the coming weeks, but as he's writing to them, he's trying to get them to be straightened out, get things figured out, to get on the right road, the right path, to have a fuller context here. And perhaps he might have a word for us as well, us moderns here today. The Corinthians lived in a culture that was very much like our own. It was a culture that was wealthy. We as Americans, we, are, we live in a wealthy nation. We know that. It was a, also cosmopolitan, the location where they were set. Uh, they saw lots of folks coming in and out, and they had lots of opportunity there. It was a pagan culture. We live in a pagan culture. We live in, a, in diversity of thought and view and philosophy and religion. And many of those folks that we interact with, they may check a box that says, I'm of this particular persuasion when it comes religious, but when it comes to everyday practice, they may not be anything, just a pagan uh, kind of pre presentation, the way they look at life, and they might give honor to the nation, general humanity, and whatnot, but not any particular religious conviction. But there was religious affiliation as well, and we see that in our nation as, as well. There's worship of love, right? Love. We like the sound of love. I like the sound of love. I mean, I watch love actually all the time. <laughs> right? So, Love is, you know, it's, there's, a, there's a great affirmation for that. In this particular uh, city, there was worship of Aphrodite, 
or in the Roman uh, constellation of gods, Venus. There is a focus on health and prosperity. One of the things that comes with great wealth, and we see this in our own country, and they saw this back with the Corinthians, was just even looking at the way people dressed, what they wore, the types of makeups they applied to themselves so they'd look attractive uh, to others. And we have lots of that stuff left over from history uh, from them. They were part of a powerful empire. There's a lot of uh, power that existed there with military might being part of the Roman Empire. All things that we enjoy and things that are part of our lives as Americans today. These, of course, invite a similar operating system. The similar operating system that happens in people's lives, whether an ancient person or a modern person, when you live in that type of context, when you grow up and you, you constantly find your identity within those contexts, it manifests itself in conceptions of personal freedom that look a particular way. These ancients claim in verse 12, all things are permitted for me. It's a mantra that will be repeated later on in chapter 10 as Paul is uh, doing some work countering it. And this course could easily be uttered in our own day and age, maybe even by some of us. Our demand for personal liberty, our freedom, our freedom, right? My rights kind of stuff. It's the way that we talk about what we do and what we're entitled to. And of course, verse 13, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. That's acting out on personal impulses. It's satisfying personal appetites. And it's saying these things are appropriate no matter what they might be. And again, this all could easily be offered in our own day, these types of phrases. We might say them a little different. We might say verse 12, I am free. Verse 13, to be me is how we might say it. But when taken with no concern for another, when we don't think about our neighbor, when we don't think about the communities that we inhabit, the people that we're familyed with, the people that we form friendships and deep bonds with, that freedom can result in a community that's in conflict. And that's what we see here in Corinth. And it's also what we see in our country and our world today. So hold on. We might say that, no, 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 no. Come on, Jimmy. Come on, Jimmy. This can't be a modern problem. We're much too sophisticated for that. We can get a little modern snootiness about ourselves. Say, no, we wouldn't make the same mistakes. Those dudes had temples with idols in them. They were like old school. There's no way we would do half the stuff that they're doing. Well, I was recently volunteering at a local school, recently like Friday, <laughs> when I overheard someone share about how they had decided to do a particular something over against the counsel and pleas of family members. They said, I'm going I'm to do this other thing. I, it doesn't matter what the rest of those folks are. I'm going I'm to do it anyways. And, and why? Not, not, they didn't say specifically all things are permitted for me. They didn't say that. But they said this. Too bad. It's my choice. I'm going to do it anyways. Now you hear something like that and you say, yeah, we hear stuff like that from kids all the time. Right? It's mine. I'm going to do it. But this was said by a parent. We're not so far removed from the ancients, are we? When we stop and reflect, and look, we're not so far removed. So what are we to do? What are they to do? And what are we to do? Well, reflecting on the issues at hand in that ancient Corinthian church, Frank uh, Crouch observes this. He says, when conflict becomes that pervasive, no conflict management plans have any hope of succeeding unless the people involved can move beyond self-absorption, step back, and see a bigger picture of a higher calling. 
And so Paul's first move here is to expand the thinking of these ancients, and he does so initially by using their own words. Now, while I was in Connecticut, and you know, I really appreciate how walking outside this morning made me feel like I was in Connecticut. It's so freakishly cold outside, right? You know, a little word of advice from Connecticut for you, like people that you know, live in that type of environment all the time where it's really cold, uh, this is what their advice would be to you. Stay inside. <laughs> we get this sense that people are like veterans and hardened and stuff. No, we get soft. People are soft everywhere. But in, in, when I was in Connecticut, I'd get these uh, prayer cards that would be submitted from an anonymous observer, and they'd drop in the offering plate, and it was on a prayer card, and it, it would give me grammar tips. <laughs> Apparently, I was using I and me incorrectly. I don't remember which one it was which, which one I got confused, but apparently I was doing it all the time. And, and based on their choice of stationery to tell me about this, I wasn't sure if I was supposed to correct what I was saying or if I was supposed to pray about it. But either way, hearing one's words return back to you in the form of correction, that's risky. That's some risky action going on there, probably why they're anonymous. People, of course, get defensive and prickly when they see stuff like that. I have to say, not me as a pastor. <laughs> I was so defensive. <laughs> you won't believe it. Or is it me was so defensive? I don't remember. <laughs> but Paul here takes the risk. He takes their catchy phrase and he expands it to paint a more complete picture of the Christian life, of the freedom that Jesus gives. We, of course, have our own catchy phrases. You might recall a few years ago on the Ellen DeGeneres show, it's totally funny, she telephoned, do you remember this? Does watch, do you guys watch Ellen DeGeneres? Anybody watch Ellen back in the day? Who wants to admit it right now? A couple, oh, that's my hand go half an oh. But the Ellen show, she had this person, she phones this, this uh, viewer named Gladys Hardy from Austin, Texas, if you, if you remember this. And they're on the phone, and I don't know what she thought was going to happen in that conversation, but at one point, Gladys is, is kind of talking about her own kind of bad behavior, and she says, I love Jesus, but I drink a little. And that phrase has actually gone on uh, to be emblazoned in all kinds of different products. You can buy them online. There's even a book that's named after that. But this is the kind of thing the Corinthians were doing to justify their own bad behavior. They have a catchy phrase, and they're living into that phrase as though that makes it okay to do that. So beginning in verse 12, Paul expands what they are saying, from all things are permitted for me to, but not all things are beneficial. And later, I will not be dominated by anything. Paul, of course, has written elsewhere about freedom in Christ. He talks about Christ has set us free in Galatians chapter 5. And this audience has probably heard that teaching before. They haven't necessarily read Galatians, but they've heard Paul teach on this before. But then they're getting this confused. So Paul is careful here to remind them that Christian freedom is not the same as anything goes. That's not what Christian freedom is. We can't excuse everything we do by just simply saying grace covers it. And that's the mistake that they're making here. There are limits here. And of course, food here presents for us helpful imagery to understand this point here. When the all-you-can-eat buffet, you familiar with the all-you-can-eat buffet? I used to go to this Chinese buffet on Friday night. It was all-you-can-eat seafood. And there was a dude there who was just sitting there with a stack of crab legs. I mean, he had his money's worth and then some in crab legs stacked before him. A very, very smart man. Based on the amount of crab legs, though, maybe not as smart as we'd assume. But when the all-you-can-eat buffet becomes more than you can handle feast, when that happens, that is of no benefit to you. Your body tells you that right away. The ache, the pain, the sluggishness, 
And then the people that are with you, the community that are with you, whether the people dining with you there or even just your family and friends are sitting with you. It's no benefit to them either when your body goes through that transformation. And of course, it's no benefit to the janitorial staff either. In fact, there's an old Twilight Zone episode that illustrates as much, aptly named The Misfortune Cookie, where the protagonist, Harry Folger, a food critic for a major newspaper, ends up dying in the end, but he doesn't know it, like Twilight Zone episodes would have it be. He doesn't realize he's dead, but in the afterlife, he finds himself being served endless plates of food, which never fully satisfy an outsized hunger he cannot escape. Of course, the closing narration, like with Twilight Zone episodes, has Folger's predicament assessed this way. Check, please, for Mr. Harry Folger, for whom the phrase dim sum is not merely a description, but a damnation. A man who finds himself sitting down to a single, never-ending course of just desserts prepared for him in the kitchens of the Twilight Zone. We know that the no limits on food or anything isn't good for us. We know that. But even more, we can be imprisoned by our own appetites. We can be locked away by those appetites. But food isn't necessarily what these quotes are getting at, as Paul will identify in the second part of verse 13 when he writes, The body is meant not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. It seems that there were some in the audience who were engaging in sexual behavior that ran contrary to one united with Christ that they were living in such a way that it was doing harm to themselves, it was doing harm to what they had professed in Christ, and it was doing harm to the larger community that they inhabited. Hearing this, there's a temptation here to get prudish, right? At this point, we might shuffle in our seats. We might shuffle with embarrassment, like, oh, we're going to talk about that, huh? Or we might shuffle as though to get ready to strike. Behind us is a long history of castigating others, even heaping abuse on ourselves and our own activities. But Paul here wants us to hear more than mere do this and don't do that. That's, that's not really what he's trying to do here. What he wants you to do is he wants hearers then and now to reflect and to think about what we do and why we do it. To not simply just fall into the temptation of saying, my body says it's okay to do this, that, and the other thing, so I'm just going to do it. I'm going to chase my temptations or chase my appetites in this, in this sense. And so Jesus' followers are to locate themselves as those who are not their own. We see that in verse 19. And we're to glorify God with our bodies. Where we might be inclined, like the ancients, to separate what we believe and what we aspire to be from the physical realities of our lives that runs counter to what Paul is saying here. There is no such distinction. You and I are whole persons. We're tended to live life that way. That we can't simply live a life as though we're imagining something out here or we're, we're trying to think and we imagine ourselves to be a certain kind of person, but then there's no physical reality to that. Paul wants us to be a whole person. He wants this community to be a whole community with that. So there's no distinction there. There's a whole person. And not just whole persons. We're also to see ourselves as those who are joined persons. In verses 15 and 17, we're joined with Jesus Christ. That our bodies, according to verse 19, are inhabited by the Holy Spirit. We're inhabited temples. That's how we should look at ourselves. 
Such a union does not leave space for uniting with ways that are contrary to who we are in Christ. I listened to a podcaster this, this past week, and he was uh, sharing about the realm in which we, we live in. He said, we don't live in the realm of do and don't, should and shouldn't. That's not where Christians live. But we live in the realm of because. The realm of because acknowledges what we hear in verse 11, just one verse before our passage here. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. Because of that, now Paul's going to say what he's going to say. But also, in verse 20, you were bought with a price. So we live in light of that. We don't live this way to somehow achieve some sort of satisfaction with God. We've been justified in Jesus Christ. We live this way because this is how you live when God is inhabiting you as a temple of the Holy Spirit. N.T. Wright says this much. He says, those who have been bought at tremendous cost and must remind themselves of what special people they are and learn to behave accordingly. Glorify God in your body. In other words, discover how to live the truly human life which brings glory to the God in which image you are made and whose own unique image his son Jesus died to rescue you from all that will stop you being the person he longs for you to be. Referring, referring back to Frank Crouch, Christ does not set us free so we can do whatever we want to do. Christ sets us free so that we can do whatever God wants us to do. And that's what Paul is grabbing hold for us here. So my conclusion for us this morning is this. You can name any type of physical activity you might want to name here, sexual or otherwise. We've got to get skin in the game. We've got to get skin in the game. We're not called to be people that look from afar, but we're called to be actively present as whole people. So let's get physical, right? Let's get physical. Not in Olivia Newton-John way. Not that way, but in regard to the faith. Hasn't God done as much in Jesus Christ? Hasn't God done as much in Jesus Christ? This weekend's an interesting weekend for us. It should be a powerful weekend for us as a church, people of faith, particularly as we remember uh, the important witness and the words of Dr. King, reminded of someone who literally put skin in the game, who took ideas and concepts and got physical with those concepts, not just for his own personal betterment, but also for the larger community to bring healing and wholeness to a nation and to communities of faith, as well as brothers and sisters and neighbors. And so it's an important weekend for us. I've been recently listening to an audio book of Pope Francis that was recommended to me um, by one of our members. He says an important word that comes out of uh, the season we're in post-COVID uh, shutdowns. He says we need to return to a sense of fraternity by looking out for one another, the brotherhood and sisterhood that we share with each other that might have been lost heading into that season and during that season. And so, friends, get physical, get skin in the game, and look for ways that your life might better reflect the goodness, the love, and the grace that you've received from God in Jesus Christ. May it be so for each one of us today and every day of our lives. Amen. Friends, let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your great love this morning, and particularly as we gather here in worship and we sing and we pray and we ponder. 
Lord, as our hearts have pondered the, the words of Scripture here, and as we continue to allow those to marinate within our spirit, Lord, we pray that you would transform us and move us into places where healing needs to continue in our lives, where places of reconciliation need to happen, where behaviors and actions that we might once have given quarter to would cease so that we might give glory to you all the more with all of us, our whole being. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.